everyone. Welcome to A Gut Feely. My name is Jake and I'm joined here today with Dave. As health coaches and educators, we've helped thousands of clients optimize their life by healing their gut. Our aim with this podcast is to provide you with some of those tools. Now, before we get into it, don't forget to check out the show notes for links to our social media profiles. And if you like what we've got to say, go with your gut and give this podcast a follow. Now, let's get into today's show. <laughs> So gut and hormones, these things are intricately connected. So Dave, there's so much we could talk about, so many different areas to go. Where should we begin? I think it's pretty good to, to start with a bit of an overview and for people to understand that the, the body is really built on all these axes. And you know, when it comes to things like the microbiome and your gut, it's really, really important in the role of like hormone homeostasis. And so what I mean by this is just regulation of your hormones, like modulating and making sure that we've got like the, the correct levels. And, and we're essentially talking about here, like the gut to hormone axis. And so when I'm saying that the, the body is built on all these different axes, you know, this is one of those axes, but we've got, we've got all these other axes as well, like gut to liver axis, gut to kidney axis. You know, what do you mean by an axis? People may not have heard that. What does that mean? Well, I think like, you know, maybe in the more simplest terms, we're just talking about that the relationship and that that mm. communication if we use the example of something like the enteric nervous system which is the nervous system that exists between the, the gut and the brain mm. well there's like you know 30 different neurotransmitters that are actually produced within the enteric nervous system so there's a communication here between the gut and the brain and so they, that's what i mean by you know these these key axes in the body because obviously there's the the body works in symbiosis there's 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 all these key relationships and and what we're talking about here is the, the key relationship with the microbiome, the gut, and your hormones, okay? Because a lot of time when people say, well, they've got hormonal imbalance, I would say most of the time what gets looked at is just directly the hormones. That's mm. it. And then maybe they get put on something like HRT, like hormone replacement therapy. And, you know, there could be some other remedies that they might use, you know, like might be even herbal, you know, things that might mimic mm hormones and so forth but once again and i'm not i'm not discrediting obviously the role that hormones even mm. play with the gut does that make sense because you look at like you know hormones they can actually help with transit time of food you look at something like progesterone well progesterone okay, actually helps to slow the transit time of food down now the reason it does that you know in pregnant women actually helps to get more nutrients to mm. uh, to the fetus even things like you know estrogen delays gastric emptying now they're necessary processes because if we're talking about like transit time of food, we're also regulating things like blood sugar. So the, the hormones obviously have a key, you know, a key relationship in terms of regulating what's going on from a from a digestive perspective. So I'm not taking away from that. Have, okay. have you noticed though, Dave, whenever someone comes to you, they've go, they go, hey, I think I've got a hormonal issue. I've got these symptoms and they go to a doctor and they get blood work done. They come and they've only got hormones tested. And if we're lucky, maybe they'll test the hormones at an appropriate time. Maybe we can get a little bit of data out of that. But they, they won't even do full blood count. They won't do liver markers. And I'll get these, like, I don't know if you get this, but I'll get clients send me these, these test results. And I look at it and be like, what's that tell me? What am I, why am I, I going to look at hormones? I understand you've got a hormonal issue, but we need, like, this is nothing. This is just the, the tip of the iceberg. This is a symptom of what's going on underneath. Hey. 100%. We're not telling people that don't look at what's going on with the hormones. Mm. But what we're essentially saying, if you're only looking at the hormones and that's the only thing you're addressing, well, 
and you're not looking at the microbiome and you're not looking at the gut lining, it's going to be extremely hard to rectify your hormonal issues. Yeah. And you're probably you're probably not going to rectify your hormonal issues, more to the point. Yeah. yeah. Because, you know, once again, we look at, you know, the microbiome and maybe just use some examples here. Um, let's use like progesterone as a bit of an example again. Okay. It's actually shown and you know, I've talked to you about like a, a study that they actually did on like pregnant women and when women are pregnant, obviously things like progesterone estrogen raises up and what they actually noticed in pregnant women was when the progesterone levels were higher that there was high levels of bifidobacterium so we could make the conclusion that does progesterone regulate the bifidobacterium levels or is it that the bifidobacterium is actually uh, involved in the ability mm. for us to metabolize like the steroid hormone because once again the, the microbiome are just so important for our ability to assimilate the singular molecules so what i mean by this like the building box that we need for the hormones. So what I'm talking about here is like particular like proteins. So th this this is what I'm talking about like from a from a building block perspective. Mm -hmm. And even if we look at something like you know steroidal hormones, if you look at some of the key building blocks that we need for that, you know things like panathenic acid, vitamin B5, but once mm -hmm. again our ability to synthesize micronutrients, so things like vitamins and minerals, a lot of that is coming down to the to the microbiome and obviously the gut lining. Things like acetyl coenzyme A, a lot of that can be also down to things like short chain fatty acids. A lot of that is to do with the, the microbiome and even things like dietary fats. Now, a lot of that is obviously down to the to the epithelium, the mucosal cells. So I mean, like a lot of these key building blocks that we need for things like the steroidal hormones um, are obviously really dependent on the, the gut lining and the microbiome. And if you actually look at it, a lot of hormones obviously are dependent on this. You, we use the example of uh, um, something like melatonin. Now, if you look at like lactobacillus, like lactobacillus is actually required for our ability to regulate something like estrogen. So it's a carrier for estrogen. So it actually helps to recirculate it through the bloodstream. That's a modulation process. So once again, that hormone homeostasis. Um, and then the estrogen actually helps with the ability to metabolize L-tryptophan. L-tryptophan gets converted into 5-HTP. 5-hydroxy-L-tryptophan gets converted to serotonin. And then it gets converted to melatonin. But it's not only lactobacillus. It's also other bacteria like Clostridia, Clostridium. It's positive gram bacteria. Things like Streptococcus, Enterococcus. So there's a lot of bacteria involved in our ability to produce things like serotonin, melatonin. And you can use so many examples of this. I mean, obviously we're gonna go a little bit more into some of these steroidal hormones like testosterone and estrogen. But once again, like even something like the thyroid, well, that's really dependent on the gastrointestinal tract as well, because obviously building blocks, things like tyrosine, iodine, but also our ability to clear excess amounts of hormones out of the system. Well, that's really dependent on you know, phase phase three liver detoxification, which is really elimination. And what we need to understand is 25% of detoxification is actually taking place through the gut because obviously we're eliminating a lot of these things through urine and feces. So the, the microbiome may actually help to signal to the endocrine glands where we obviously uh, excrete, okay, mm. the, the, the hormones, but they signal to the endocrine glands to actually allow us to like release the hormones, which hormones to release, and, and also how much of those hormones to release. So in those cases, Dave, where maybe there's an assimilation issue, maybe there's um, you know particular proteins that are lacking, maybe there's an issue there with the gut lining, are all and and the signaling that you just mentioned there are they always going to lead to more of like a, a 
um, like low hormonal output? Is this where people are going to be experiencing low steroidal hormones, low sex hormones? Maybe they're going to experience um, potentially some menstrual cycle issues for females. Is it always going to be in the low end based on what you've just said there? No, it's a, it's, a, it's a great question. So what I'm talking about with this this modulation, we're just talking about this this regulation. And if I just use some examples of some collectives of bacteria, um, so and, and we're probably going to go into this a little bit more. But if we look at something like the estrobolum, so the estrobolum is like a collective of about sixty different types of bacteria. Some of that bacteria can be non-pathogenic in nature and, and some of it can be pathogenic in nature, and that can be made up of bacteria like Escherichia coli enterococcus but also things like shigella which is more pathogenic in nature so it's a bit of a mishmash and if you actually look at the role of the the estrobolum the role of the estrobolum is to actually produce like a protein molecule it's called beta glucuronidase so that's an enzyme anything with an ase on the end speeds up a chemical reaction it's an enzyme and what the role of beta glucuronidase is to take what we have like like basically like conjugated uh, estrogen which basically means it's bound in layman's terms and the role of the beta-glucuronidase is to take that conjugated estrogen and then unconjugate it, basically means unbind it. That's a modulation because obviously we're going to clear that bound estrogen, okay, and we're going to clear it through like urine, feces, or what we need to do is regulate our estrogen levels by having uh, creating more active estrogen, and then we're going to recirculate that back through the bloodstream. So you can actually have the instance where you actually have low levels of the estrobolum to answer your question. So if I've got low levels of the estrobolum, that bound estrogen, what we're, what we're not doing in this instance is that it's like it's obviously staying bound, so it's staying conjugated, and then we're clearing that. Now, if we're not creating more unconjugated estrogen or unbound estrogen, okay, we're not going to have as much active estrogen in the bloodstream. So then you're going to have some negative ramifications around having like low estrogen but obviously, there's the also the opposing issue. Okay. So just before you go into that, so in that scenario, where we would expect someone's going to have low, you just said lower levels of estrobolum. So there's going to be lower levels of bacteria. Um, there may be some, still be some dysbiotic bacteria, some pathogenic bacteria, whatever. That could be a different issue there. But essentially, in that in that situation, this person's going to have low levels of whether it's particular types of E. coli or it's types of lactobacillus or, or whatever. There's going to be overall low representation and so could that be like what would cause that that could be excessive antibiotic use antibiotics even just in our food supply what else do you think could be contributing to that so i mean obviously like uh like a lot of things that are you know are going to affect that microbiome ratio so you know maybe if you did something like a stool test and it was obviously showing up with you know low levels of things like estrogen coli okay, i mean obviously you could have things like no growth and obviously there can be a lot of things that can affect that microbiome ratio it could be like damage to the to the environment and so what i mean by that like damage to the terrain i said damage to the the epithelium and the mucosal cells and that affects uh, you know the ratio of the microbiome because obviously and that damage dave that because that people probably don't know what would cause damage that's like that's sort of hard in and of itself so that'll be things like medication use it could be high levels of stress it could be high levels of cortisol what else am i missing you know just high amounts of like chronic stress and so Mm. forth that can definitely affect the microbiome ratios like what you said is like antibiotics i mean it's basically like anti-life and they go in there and they can even wipe out the the beneficial flora Mm. okay so, you know, certain types of other medications can affect the microbiome ratios, things like pregnenazone and cortisone and these types of things. I mean, 
Obviously, we're not going to go into every single thing, um, but these are some of the things that, once again, affect those ratios, and that can definitely affect our ability to have maybe high amounts of certain hormones. Because when we're talking about dysbiosis, that would mean that that a lot of people probably think dysbiosis just means an overgrowth of bad bacteria or opportunistic or pathogenic. But it could just be a ratio issue, like what you're saying there, couldn't it? It could just be that there's there may even be normal levels of, of opportunistic or other types of bacteria, but there's actually low levels of good bacteria. So it's not just that there's this excessive amount of negative stuff, it's just that that balance is off, yeah? It's the ratio that we're that we're that we're really trying to maintain, and of course, and of course, that ebbs and flows, and that mm. ebbs and flows according to what even what, even what uh, food molecules we're getting exposed mm. to, and so so I'm not saying that it doesn't ebb and flow, but like roughly, you know, we we're sort of we want about eighty five percent being good, about fifteen percent is bad, and it doesn't mean that the the bad bacteria doesn't serve a purpose. Yeah, it's not like we're here to to demonize it and say that it's. Uh, um, you know, because once again, even things that we would say are more pathogenic in nature, you know, in like things like candida and yeast, well, they can actually help with things like nutrient absorption. Does that make sense? Once again, as long as we've mm-hmm. got it in the right ratios. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but obviously, you know, what I was talking about is you can have have the, the other aspect where if you had too much of the estrobolum, in the example of something like SIBO, like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, don't think we're necessarily going to get too much into the weeds with that directly. But if you've obviously got the overgrowth of bacteria within the small intestine, which can be a bit of a mishmash of the bacteria that you might find in your mouth, it could be the bacteria that you find in the, the colon and the large intestine. So some of that could be negative gram bacteria, positive gram bacteria. Some of it can be non-pathogenic, pathogenic. And really it's coming about because of the structures, the internal structures that keep uh, bacteria from proliferating and migrating in an area like the, the duodenum or the jejunum or the or the ileum, those structures are broken down and that's enabled because it's created a gut motility issue, which means we've got problems with like intestinal churning. And so food that has hot, like a higher fermentable rate comes in and just sits there and it ferments and that encourages the bacterial overgrowth. Now, some of that bacteria can be made up of the, the estrobolum. So, and if we've got a high proportion of the estrobolum now, and then what they're doing is they're just doing their job and they're producing more of the beta-glucuronidase then what that's doing is it's taking that conjugated estrogen that I was talking about and then it's unconjugating it, so it's unbinding it. So now we have more active estrogen. And then when we have more active estrogen, that gets uh, circulated through the bloodstream. So now we have like estrogen dominance. And so obviously there's issues that are going to arise with estrogen dominance, especially, you know, women's health ailments. So things like endometriosis, because obviously there's high amounts of estrogen that can cause tissue growth on the inner side of the uterus, the outer side of the uterus, even within the gastrointestinal tract, um, you know, delayed gastric emptying, so more constipation. And what's the issue there? Yeah, more constipation. Well, I'm not able to clear excess amounts of hormones. Mm. So you even have even higher amounts of like excess estrogen. And then that can in turn cause issues with other hormones because estrogen, when there's high amounts, that can affect things like thyroid binding glob- globulin. And then when there's high amounts of thyroid binding globulin, that binds to you know, um, more bioavailable thyroid hormone. And that can lead to things like hypothyroidism and Hashimoto's. But once again, I'm just using that as a bit of a a cascade effect because now it creates another hormonal issue, Mm. okay? Um, You know, and even more things like water retention, weak pelvic floor. If Um, these things are happening, Dave, and someone's got um, like an increase in beta-glucuronidase, obviously we can test for beta-glucuronidase in a stool test, but... If that's what's occurring and that's what's causing these estrogen-dominant type symptoms, 
is that going to show up on a hormone test? If someone goes and tests their estrogen, are they necessarily going to have high levels of, of serum estrogen? Or would that potentially not show up if it's due to the high levels of beta glucuronidase? We, we need to understand that there can be some... Um, there can be some inaccuracies around like even just testing hormones just solely through something like blood markers, but maybe something like, you know, testosterone could be a little bit more accurate, but sometimes, you know, um, testing certain hormones like estrogen hormones and progesterone could be a little bit more accurate even in something like saliva or maybe you need a combination of both. Does it make sense? So you're not really getting a, like a real accurate depiction of where that's sitting. And if we really want to understand something like beta-glucuronidase, like really you need to do that within like a stool test. Hmm. Um, and, and, and I'm not saying that always that the number one reason that the, the elevation of beta-glucuronidase is going to be something like SIBO, but you also do know that, you know, once again, that could be a huge culprit behind that. And so like that would be a more accurate depiction is, you know, testing stool and seeing where the beta-glucuronidase levels are. And then obviously you would you would say that there's there's going to be some some complications around like estrogen dominance in this instance. Well, I've got clients who do stool testing and and I don't do stacks of it. But when I do, it's normally going to be with people who, um, you know, I suspect SIBO or some form of you know dysbiosis. And generally speaking, I'm seeing beta glucuronidase come up off the charts. Like it's almost always very high. Are you seeing that low in people who have SIBO, or is it almost like are you generally seeing what I'm seeing and seeing on the high end as well? the the high end and then like you know look the thing is like you know what we're going to say is that obviously what you want to rectify here is is the SIBO you want to mm. you want to rectify the the small intestinal bacterial overgrowth um but there are obviously are things that you can do to to regulate the beta glucuronidase levels so that essentially we're not taking a, a lot of this foundation and unbinding it so we have more activation through the bloodstream do you know what i mean so and obviously there's things that we can use to do that we're not saying that that's the the, the long-term solution no. because obviously you've got to rectify the SIBO and we're not necessarily going to go in this podcast and talk about like the the you know the protocol that we would apply for something like SIBO i mean we, we obviously we'll talk about that uh, in other podcasts but obviously you want to rectify the SIBO there can be certain compounds that could really help with the excess amounts of beta-glucuronidase. So one of those is, is calcium deglucurate. The calcium deglucurate you can get from, you know, uh, things like fruits and vegetables, um, and obviously you can take it as a supplement, okay? And so calcium deglucurate, essentially what it does, get, it gets metabolized into glucaric acid, and the glucaric acid, what it essentially does, it binds to toxins, and it actually within the, within the stomach lining, within the gastrointestinal tract, and then it actually helps to clear it via like urine mm. um, and then there's there's other benefits there as well like it's antifungal so it's going to have mm. some benefits against like candida and yeast like excess amounts of ammonia i actually can actually help with the clearance of that like maybe like elevation and things like ldl cholesterol free radicals so there's there's other there's other benefits there i'm laughing um, a little bit dave because obviously calcium deglucate is a, a pretty popular supplement but like you said you can get it from food and, and the main foods will be things like broccoli and cauliflower and some of these cruciferous vegetables and it's you know i see sort of more like natural health you know practitioners and stuff posting about it and talking about it and you know eat your broccoli you need to have a cup of broccoli a day to get enough calcium deglucate to have a positive effect but for someone who's got SIBO <laughs> How are they going to feel eating a cup of broccoli a day, eating two cups of broccoli? They're going to just well, they, bloat and be gassy yeah. and they're going to feel awful anyway. So sometimes a supplement is is not a bad idea, even if you can get it from food. Well, this is the thing. So like, you know, 
because a lot of people are going to have problems with what's called glucuronidation. And for people who don't know what that is, it's a particular pathway in phase two liver detoxification. And actually what it actually helps us eliminate is things like coal tar and dyes and excess phenols and excess amounts of uh, melatonin, so hormones, but even excess amounts of estrogen. And if you look at some of the key things that we need here are like uh, beta-glucuronidase, okay, once again, this is, this is, the, this is a regulation, and also uh, glucuronic acid. So uh, what you're saying, Jake, is, you know, some of these foods that are really high in glucuronic acid, like apples and broccoli, um, well, where it becomes a little bit ironic here is that if I have something like SIBO, and that's really the reason <laughs> that I've got the elevation in the beta-glucuronidase, well, you know, FODMAP obviously uh, applies to SIBO. Like if you, feel, if you feel really good on something like, like on a low FODMAP outline, SIBO is is really the, the major problem here. And they... That's so important. That's 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 really the most important thing in this whole podcast so far because you can get so much invaluable information just from looking at what food someone has a negative response to. So I, I think we should do a whole podcast on that at, at some point. But it's probably the most valuable thing I think I've ever learned as a coach because even if you don't do bloods, you don't do stool tests, you get a client who comes to you and they say, man, I'm bloated all the time. Well, what is that? Is that yeast? Is it SIBO? Is it a parasite? I don't know. But then they say, I'm bloated all the time. When I eat onion and I eat garlic, that's giving you a completely different data set than when they say, I'm bloated all the time, especially when I eat sugar and I drink alcohol and I have coffee. That's like, you know, that's telling me that's probably a yeast issue as opposed to, well, FODMAPs, it's going to be a SIBO issue. So that's a really important point. Write it down. FODMAPs are causing an issue. It's probably going to be SIBO. Great point. And also, it's the problem when you're looking at something and all we're trying to do address is the beta-glucuronidase and then we use a mechanism to try and regulate that by <laughs> consuming more foods that have more glucuronic acid. But it's going to aggravate the SIBO. It's going to make the SIBO worse. And we're not saying that we, we have a problem with apple and broccoli and so we're not saying that because the, 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 the dominant you know, the dominant issue that we've really got to address here is the, is the, the motility issues and obviously the SIBO. I think that's a sensitive topic for you, Dave, isn't it? Saying you've, you've got an issue with apples or with fruit. I think every time you talk about it, you have to give it a little bit of a um, a disclaimer that you've got no issue with them. <laughs> well, look, look, you know, you know, we say this all the time. I mean, really, from our from our stance, is that it's it's what's going on in the gastrointestinal tract that is really fo- forcing us into these extreme nutritional outlines. Mm. You know, if you if you if you've got something like H. pylori, you've got issues within the stomach lining. Well, you you probably are going to gravitate a little bit more towards like plant based outline, like vegetarian, vegan. Um, and if you do have these severe fermentation issues within the gastrointestinal tract and th- something like SIBO, well, you're probably going to gravitate a little bit more towards that foods that don't sit there and ferment within the gastrointestinal lining. So maybe more things like animal proteins and animal fats. So the gut really is going to impact how we interact with a lot of different foods so beta glucuronidase so you said that's an option people can use if they suspect high uh sorry calcium deglucrate is an option people can use if they suspect high beta glucuronidase um now dosing do we want to talk about that i mean look i I think we've spoken about this before and you, you can get a lot of like mixed you know, like, uh, you know, mixed data around this. Like they can say anywhere from, you know, like uh, 1,500 milligrams up to like about 3,000 milligrams. Mm. But then I've read some data where they say like, you know, maybe in some instances people need extremely high amounts. It might be in the realms of anywhere from two to 400 milligrams per 
one kilo of body weight. So, I mean, obviously that's really huge amounts. So it's a lot. It's a lot. But once again, I'm, I'm not telling people to do that really in the realms of like, you know, 1500 milligrams, maybe up to that 3000 milligrams. And I'm sure you're the same, Jake, like in terms of you've read some conflicting data or like different dosaging. Absolutely. Like you said, there's, the, the, the conflicting data often comes if it's being dosed off body weight or if it's being dosed off, um, I guess, clinically what people are seeing, seeing work. So, um, you know, I used to dose it a lot higher. I think we've had that conversation in the past and I won't say how high, how high I used to go, but um, now I do stick maybe more to the 1,500, 2,000 milligrams. And, and, you know, if you're tackling other things as well, that, that seems to have a positive effect. Uh, but like you said, you can't just stop there. You know, that, that's, no different to, that's no different to the conventional medical system, is it? If we say, here's an issue, let's use this supplement to fix it or use this supplement to, to mask it, that doesn't change anything. So calcium deglucrate is a good tool to have in the toolbox, but you need to be addressing the SIBO, hey? 100%. I mean, that's a big point that we want to get across. Of course, we want to give certain remedies that will actually help with the elevation of beta-glucuronidase. Um, you know, even other things, you know, like, you know, milk thistle, okay, that, that could potentially help as well. My, my, I like things that are a little bit less aggressive, like a milk thistle tea. But once again, it is just really focusing on the, the elevation of the beta-glucuronidase if we really want to correct the issue. We really want to tackle the SIBO. I know it's a rabbit hole, Dave, but just quickly, when you say that, you like less aggressive issue, uh, things like, like milk thistle tea instead of actually supplementing with milk thistle or silymarin. Um, and I've heard you say that with DIM as well. And a lot of the time people will get DIM and calcium deglucurate in a combo. What do you mean by that? Why, why wouldn't you want to supplement with, with silymarin or milk thistle? Well, once again, like it's, I don't have a problem with milk thistle. Yeah, okay. There obviously can be benefits to the, to the liver and actually it can even actually help with things like glutathione sort of like indirectly anything that helps the liver is going to help with like even things like glutathione synthesis from the liver but it's 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 high sulfur um and once again like you know i don't want to get too much into this rabbit hole but you know some people can have problems with sulfur metabolization with underlying uh, gastrointestinal issues especially things like hyperpermeability and SIBO yeah so once again if they've got the issues with the sulfur metabolization and just using something like you know, high dosage milk thistle, could that pose a bit of a problem in that instance where there could be better, you know, my big point there is there could be better options mm. okay, that uh, are not going to be more problematic for that individual. But I'm not saying that there's milk thistle is bad. I want to make that clear. No. Yeah? Do you see, because I often see people use it. It's, a, it's obviously one of the most common liver supplements. So sometimes I see people have been on it for years. Now I do use milk thistle sometimes, right? Like I, I do use in the supplement form. Um, sometimes I'll use it with artichoke. And again, like you said, if, if I don't suspect SIBO, that's going to be the best time to use that kind of supplement. But there can be some issues supplementing with these things long-term. Hey, like it's having some positive effects on the liver, but it can also impede detoxification to an extent as well, can't it? You know, it, it just totally depends on the individual. Again, I'm, I'm not saying that I've got a problem with like milk thistle. And obviously there can be some benefits, but it's, it's uh, really we need to weigh up you know, what's going to be best for the, the particular individual, okay, and really base it around the circumstances. Mm. So if someone's got SIBO and, and they're, you know, using some of these things to help modulate hormones a little bit, using calcium deglucreate, ultimately they need to address the SIBO. Um, how do they even know where to start? How do they know if it's a SIBO which is causing the issues or if it's something else? Where do they go? So milk thistle can be an option and like tea, milk thistle tea, calcium deglucreate. Obviously, that's a, a tool people can have in their toolbox. So 
that's all things people can use to help with beta-glucuronidase, help with some of these estrogen-type, sort of dominance-type symptoms. Um, how else can the gut be affecting different hormones? We mentioned at the start testosterone. How can testosterone be impacted by all of this? Well, well, even something that would 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 have a negative impact on something like testosterone, but also like estrogen with this as well, is that people need to understand that we can get exposed to these things. They're called EDCs and they're called endocrine disrupting chemicals. And we need to understand that the, the microbiomes, so the gut bacteria play a key role in our ability to metabolize these. Even when we've been talking about like, you know, like liver detoxification and one of the big sort of enzyme groups that are really, really important when it comes to liver detoxification are cytochrome P450 enzymes. Like within humans, we've got like, like there's about 57. But the thing is like people need to understand that within the gut bacteria that there's actually up to about 3,000 present within the gut bacteria. And so what I basically mean by this is that these, these actual like uh, chemical compounds and even things like, like xenobiotics, I know for a lot of people like what I'm talking about with xenobiotics is we're talking about like ingested um, exogenous like molecules. These are like alien yeah. compounds, aren't they? They come from interspace and then <laughs> it sounds like it. It sounds like it. Um, but we're talking about like, you know, we want to make it clear that, that we're not saying that all chemicals are bad. And so people need to understand that obviously there can be particular chemical compounds that you get in certain like plants and foods and we can use them to our benefit. And a lot of these things can be used in particular types of like pharmaceuticals and so forth. So we're not just saying that these things are bad. And what we're talking about here is more things like, you know, like plastics and heavy metals and particular pollutants like petroleum and so forth. And these are what we're, what we're talking about with things that are like EDCs. Okay. So they can really, because um, mm. a lot of things like they, they mimic estrogen, so synthetic chemicals and so forth, they mimic estrogen so they can cause excess amounts of estrogen. And that can definitely cause some problems with things like androgen hormones, like testosterone well on okay. the on the um the endocrine disrupting substances there's actually a case study on pubmed that people can find where they had boys who were using lavender in their soap and their body wash and just the use of lavender because that's actually estrogenic that grew that caused the growth of, of breast tissue and these boys actually developed like gynecomastia just from lavender use it's just bringing up the point that it's the you know the microbiome is really important for our ability to metabolize this mm. and that's a, that's another example of the hormone homeostasis or the modulation process just regulating it and even you, you can use the example of like particular pharmaceuticals you know example that i've spoken about um, to you before is that you can get like particular like uh, chemotherapeutic drugs and things like enteric microbes and what i mean by that is just this is gut bacteria they actually help with the metabolization of that and but that the, the negative here is that it can affect the effectiveness of the chemotherapeutic drug mm. and so in some instances they might try to manipulate certain types of microbiome so they cannot interfere with the effectiveness of the of the uh the, the pharmaceutical drug does that make sense that's a, a really important mechanism that the microbiome is involved in to actually help us metabolize these these particular compounds and then there's a there's a there's a, a regulation of the, the hormonal balance that is taking place here as well so how does how does this all affect testosterone? So you've mentioned the estrobolin. Is there? Yeah. Okay. So this, this can so obviously this can be something that can cause like some some disruption with something like uh, like tes testosterone, yeah, because of having high amounts of these EDCs. Mm -hmm. But you know we talked about the the estrobolin, okay. But you also got the the endobolin, 
and the endo bombs bit of a new concept um but we're talking about another collective of back, uh, bacteria and so the the endobolum actually helps with our ability for like recirculation of androgens and so once again that's a that's a modulation process okay and so what i'm talking about with androgens you really need that the endobolum actually helps with the metabolization of steroidal hormones and so these androgen hormones like androstenedione androstenedol big one like testosterone so that's a that's a regulation of these androgens. If I if I just give some examples here, they've even found like like pre-puberty, okay, that the microbiome ratios for female for girls and boys can be pretty similar. And then actually like post-puberty, that there's actually significant variances in the in the in the microbiome ratios. And a lot of this could be also like based around the hormones. Um, and actually they've found within um, within men that there could be high ratios of particular types of microbiome. So for instance, in males, okay, they found that high amounts of uh, bacteroidetes, like higher amounts. Now, once again, I'm saying this is quite a new concept, so we can't say a lot of this stuff is conclusive. Does that make sense? But certain types of you know, microbiome, there's one called uh, Doria, uh, Megamonas, I know you like that one, yeah. uh, Ruminococcus, uh, Acinetobacter. So a lot of these ones have been linked to actually helping with like testosterone yeah, and then high amounts of these and even lower amounts of particular bacteria, okay, like lactobacillus uh, reteri, okay, um, bifidobacterium um, could also be linked to causing issues with um, testosterone levels as well. And I know, you know, there's, I mean, I know not everyone's big on like mice studies and rat, and rat <laughs> studies, um, and, but, you know, sometimes there's, there's particular testing that they can't really do on humans. Okay, we've just got to bear that in mind. And, you know, yes, we've got to take it with a pinch of salt, but it doesn't mean you, we can't also acknowledge just some of that interesting data. And, you know, they actually did like a, a, a mice study where they actually had germ-free mice. They took the germ-free mice and actually colonized the germ-free mice. So actually higher amounts of bacteria and actually noticed within the female mice that actually helped to regulate the, the, the estrogen cycle. And then within the male mice that it actually um, related to high amounts of sperm count. So obviously there was benefits to testosterone levels in that instance as well. Now I'm not, once again, uh, me and Jake are definitely not saying that we've got to take that like literally, but once again, it's, it can be some interesting research that have done to see that the, the correlations of how important the microbiome are to, to the hormonal balance. So is it as simple as going and getting a probiotic and that'll boost up your testosterone? <laughs> or what can people do? Well, it sort, of, it, sort, it sort of sounds like that, doesn't it? Does it does a little yeah, bit, okay? yeah. A lot, of people, a, lot, a lot of people would think, well, you know, well, I just uh, take some bifidobacterium, I take some lactobacillus ruteri, okay? You know, some of these other bacteria that I was talking about. But it's just, once again, it's just not that simple because they always, always can be negative ramifications from you isolating one particular bacteria strain because favoring one could cause some other complications internally in the bodies. So we're definitely not saying that because a lot of the time what you got to do is you got to rectify the environment to actually help with the ratios once again. But also like understanding, and I, I think this is a great example in, in relation to something like testosterone because obviously we use the example of something like SIBO with the estrobolum and, and those complications around estrogen. So a particular like uh, overgrowth of bacteria or pathogenic overgrowth of bacteria that can relate to some issues with testosterone is negative gram bacteria. And we want to make it clear, not all negative gram bacteria is bad. Sounds like it. Most of the time when you say negative gram bacteria to people, they think, oh, that sounds really bad. But most negative gram bacteria in the body is good. And 
Negative gram bacteria just re, uh, uh, refers to the, the cell structure. Okay, basically means it has two cell membranes. And obviously we have non-pathogenic strains of negative gram bacteria, and then we've got pathogenic strains of negative gram bacteria. And the outer membrane of the negative gram bacteria is made of LPS, it's lipopolysaccharides, fatty acid molecules, long chain carbohydrate molecules like polysaccharides, monosaccharides. Not going to try and get too much into the weed with weeds with this. Yeah, okay? right, on that though, if people are interested, but you can basically go run a PubMed search for just about any condition, any disease, and type in lipopolysaccharides next to it. And there's going to be studies and papers and hypotheses on how LPS is linked to a lot of these conditions. But something that obviously uh, relates to you know causing complications with something like testosterone. Um, and LPS can obviously cause many issues like LPS induced insulin resistance, LPS depression. But relating this to uh, testosterone, what they've actually shown is that LPS can cause um, cell death within the Leydig cells. And most people are going to say, like, what the hell is Leydig cells? <laughs> but to actually help with the production of like testosterone, we within the hypothalamus, we produce gonadotropin releasing hormone, sends a message to the anterior pituitary gland to release things like follicle stimulating hormone that helps with a thing called spermatogenesis. What the hell is that? Sperm count, but also luteinizing hormone. And luteinizing hormone actually helps the release of testosterone from the Leydig cells within the testicles and then into the bloodstream. So if we're creating cell death within the Leydig cells, do you reckon that's going to have a pretty negative consequence on something like testosterone? Of course, okay. So what they've actually noticed is that you get LPS, that increases what we call like toll-like receptors. Uh, and there's a one called uh, a toll receptor. And then that um, causes like an activation of the innate immune system, like initial responder. And then with that, you produce more pro-inflammatory like cytokines and interleukins, TNF-alpha, interleukin-6, IL-1. And then this actually causes an inhibition of like testicular function. That's the, that's the knock-on effect. Because, you know... A, you know, testosterone is becoming a huge problem. It's obviously that's a that's a conversation for another time. Um, well, know, it is interesting, uh, and and you know, like you said, maybe we'll talk about it more another time. But obviously, there's a whole lot of data coming out showing declining levels of testosterone, and and this isn't just you know small de declining levels. This is um, you know half of what it was a few generations ago, and on a trajectory that that men will essentially be infertile in a foreseeable future. So it's very, like, very significant. Um, levels now you've mentioned just there about the lps would you say that this is something that people are facing more issues with today than they had in the past like is there more more rates of negative gram bacteria overgrowth or would you say it's more to do with the the gut lining being more compromised so lps is getting into the blood system more and causing more issues that way why do you think this might be affecting people more it's a lot, lot more prevalent in people who are you know, a lot of chronic stress, maybe a little bit more sympathetic nervous system uh, sort of driven with like sympathetic nervous system hyperactivity, like maybe, you know, business owners, high executives who are under a lot of stress. Okay, so that can be a little bit, a lot more prevalent because you're obviously affecting things like your, your beneficial flora, affecting that, okay, a lot of that, them obviously help to keep the balance, okay. But exactly what you were saying, Jake, as well, in terms of you're, you're affecting the, the terrain, yeah. And then when people do have the, the bacterial overgrowth, the LPS, which can cause, ironically, more damage to the to even like the tight junction proteins, especially things like um, like dysfunction of like occludin, which is a major like filter protein within the intracellular tight junctions, even things like, you know, 
bluntening of the brush borders because it raises a lot of these pro-inflammatory proteins that I was talking about. But also in this instance, when you do have the damage in the gut lining, the LPS has an easier escape route through the intracellular type junctions and basically into the hepatic portal system like bloodstream liver, okay, where it starts to, once again, like we can deal with small amounts of LPS, but when we're dealing with high amounts, that's where it can catabolize our sort of like glutathione pools and so forth. So that's where it starts to become a problem. So it's generally a combination of the, the two. Because what we, what we need to understand is that obviously the microbiome can have a huge influence on things like the reproductive organs. And, you know, if we look at the seminal fluid and what I'm talking about here is semen, we could look at it like with females, like the vaginal region, okay, is a little bit more simplistic. I mean, they're meant to be like high levels of like lactobacillus, yeah, okay? And the lactobacillus actually helps to keep a more acidic environment there, which actually helps to keep away like certain pathogens like Gardenella and all these types of things. But in men, there's a lot more complexity in the seminal fluid and there could be a lot of bacteria. So if we do have things like SIBO and like proto proteobacteria like negative gram bacteria well this can definitely be within the seminal fluid within the semen maybe more prone to things like urinary tract infections and as like what i'm talking about here definitely affect even things like testosterone production yeah. now i've heard this is a curveball i don't know if you've heard this before dave but i've heard of people who females who kept getting utis um, and it wasn't until their their sexual partners actually had done like a dysbiosis protocol or dealt with their own gut health that their their female actually stopped getting UTIs. Do you reckon that's connected to what you've just said there? Well, once again, I you know I can't say that sort of like conclusively. Do you know what I mean? Like, and I'm not going. I'm, I'm not going to. Um, but would there be some like link there? Like, definitely, there could be a link there. Mm. Mm. So if someone's listening to this and they're like, you know what, I'm pretty sure I've got hormonal issues, but this all sounds pretty complex. How do I learn more about this? How do I find out? Like I never knew the gut was was orchestrating this entire hormonal symphony. Where can people go to learn more about how the gut's impacting hormones and what they can do for next steps? If we just talk about maybe some simple measures you could put in place. Yeah, okay. You know, we talked about that with, with the, the beta-glucuronidase and, and, you know, the, the example of calcium deglucurate. Well, in the instance of something like, like LPS and, and helping with something like testosterone, well, you could definitely look at, you know, something like pomegranate husk. Pomegranate husk, is, it's got antimicrobial properties and it can definitely work against things like negative gram. Well, once again, we're not saying it's, it's the... The, the best antimicrobial when it comes to getting rid of like negative gram bacteria, but even things like yeast and candida. But the good thing about it is it has less collateral damage. Now, what I mean by that, it doesn't wipe out things like your lactobacillus and your bifidobacterium, but it's also going to help with the hormonal balance. Yeah. So it's actually going to, they've actually shown that uh, pomegranate husk can increase salivary testosterone by up to 24%. It can have some uh, knock-on effects to actually helping with even things like estrogen balance, other hormones as well. That would be an example of something we can use that's a bit more multifaceted. Mm. Okay? And that's what people, if we're talking about like initial stages, you want to go for a lot more things that are safeguard, even you know, in the instance of females, like something like, uh, like Chastaberry, okay, which is very well researched. They've obviously uh, shown you know, females taking Chastaberry for up to nine months and it didn't have any neg negative ramifications that actually plays on luteinizing hormone and then that actually helps with release of progesterone from the ovaries and even some potential benefits within the, the gastrointestinal tract as well so you know my point being is that we can go for these initial compounds and remedies that are a little bit more multifaceted mm. yeah okay do you um, use maca as well dave or do you mainly just use chastaberry 
Um, look, it's Mac is not something that I, you know, that I tend to use very frequently at all. Now, I'm not saying that it, it doesn't have benefits and, and it can definitely have benefits for, you know, menopausal women. So, but once again, it, it, it just totally depends on the individual. And in that instance, I might use it, but it's not something that I use for hormonal balance outside of that realms of like menopausal, you know, like even berberine, berberine has been shown to have some benefits for perimenopausal women. And obviously that's where progesterone is dropping off. So, you know, a lot of time, you know, people can use things like chastaberry, berberine, St. John's wort, you know, but berberine uh, has also got obviously antimicrobial benefits. Okay. It can be really beneficial, you know, SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, uh, and it's obviously got other benefits. It actually helps with the GLUT4 transporter. They're called Nature's Metformin. So it helps to drive glucose into the cell for energy. So there's benefits there, even maybe excessive amounts of LDL cholesterol. And if that's a problem, and it can be beneficial against yeast and candida, and it can be very hard for yeast and candida to essentially build up a resistance to something like berberine. So, you know, um, and it can have some benefits to, to obviously negative gram bacteria maybe it's once again it's not necessarily the most effective like antimicrobial but it can definitely have some benefits there but it can actually help with things like ampk adenosine uh, monophosphate protein kinase and we're talking about like fat mobilizations and there's some benefits there point being that a lot of these things they're very multifaceted so they're looking at from an antimicrobial perspective there's hormonal there can be blood sugar management regulation and that in initial stages is going to be a far better sort of safeguard approach. Mm. Now, you didn't mention a probiotic there, and obviously that's where most people would assume you'd probably start when you're talking about gut supplements. Is that something you would consider there? Maybe, a, I know, obviously, you sort of mentioned before, you're not big on, you know, particularly just using one strain if you don't know what someone's issue is, but maybe like a Saccharomyces or a spore base, is that something you would consider? Well, once again, even like what we're, what we're talking about and some of the examples that I've brought up is that, you know, depending on, you know, the hormones, that, that, that can be different types of bacteria strains. And so that makes it a lot more difficult. And a lot of the time without understanding like uh, what some of the other underlying issues are. So once again, if there is things like, you know, SIBO, um, well, you know, things like lactobacillus might be a bit more problematic here, especially certain strains of lactobacillus like lactobacillus bulgaricus you know, because that can create some issues around histamine. And we need to understand that one of the byproducts from SIBO is histamine. Mm. Okay. So, you know, my point being here is that you want to go for a lot, uh, a lot more things that would be a lot more safeguarded. So maybe even like, you know, bifidobacterium, um, won't necessarily go into all the different strains. Okay. Like, you know, bifidobacterium or even something like, you know, uh, a, a good yeast like Saccharomyces bladi, okay, maybe a combination of the two, even bacillus spores, bacillus coagulans, bacillus subtilis. You're going to go, you, you really want to go for things that, um, that, that really are not going to be aggravators for some of these underlying uh, bacterial issues. So more safeguard in that instance. And, but once again, there's obviously more specialized ones that might be better for, you know, uh, the particular hormones. Mm. That's good. Is there anything else from a, a diet perspective you think would be a good starting point? Or, I mean, we mentioned low FODMAP, and that's obviously something you can trial if you do think SIBO could be the issue for you. Anything else you would recommend? I mean, like, obviously, there's a lot in that. Um, but, you know, just based on what we've been talking about, okay, well, well low FODMAP, but just what people need to understand that low FODMAP is not going to fix SIBO. No. Now, it's going to help to, to, to put out the flames, but it's not going to get rid of SIBO. 
Okay, like people really need to understand that. So if we're talking about like from this hormonal perspective and testosterone and estrogen, and now we've been talking about SIBO, negative gram bacteria, well, you know, some of the, the big aggravators, you know, FODMAP, um, high FODMAP foods, but also looking at, you know, like fruit oligosaccharides could be a big problem here. So things like, you know, uh, sugar and brown sugar and wheat and barley and leeks, chicory roots and bananas, asparagus, onions, garlic, these fruit oligosaccharides because they, they're, they're classified as prebiotics and they, they feed negative gram bacteria. And then we need to understand that something like SIBO is also can be predominantly made up of negative gram bacteria as well. So avoiding something like the fruit oligosaccharides and even like, you know, certain starches, they can be problematic, uh, problematic for certain strains of negative gram bacteria like uh like Klebsiella, and once again, there's all these different strains of Klebsiella. And what I'm talking about here is things like sweet potato and potato, you know, parsnips, taro root, you know, pumpkin. Okay, but I want to make it clear that I'm not saying these starches are bad by any means. But you know, potentially for for the negative gram bacteria overgrowth, it can obviously feed the negative gram bacteria overgrowth and create uh, bigger issues around LPS, and then create more issues around mm. things like uh, like testosterone problems. Mm just as an example. Yeah. That's good, Dave. If people want to learn more, if people want to find you, um, obviously you're putting out content on your social media pages. I'm putting out content on, on my Instagram page as well. You've got a website. Are you hosting information on your website at the moment? Uh, look, the, the, I've got a lot of podcasts on there. I mentioned that. Uh, that's, that's competing with this one. So there's no podcast in Dave's well, website. Podcasts, I've, podcasts <laughs> I've been on. Um, so there's a lot of podcasts I've been on. So there is, you know, a lot of content around like videos and so forth and i know you're creating your own website so i'm sure that's going to have like lots of content on there yeah you know? so yeah um and and uh and obviously we've got we've got this this podcast so we do we do lives every fortnight so if you guys do have um topics you obviously want covered then you can get in contact with us otherwise we're going to keep thinking of topics that we want to cover like hormones <laughs> very true and obviously you know we're going to get like a lot even a lot of the things that we've spoken about it always poses more questions um but we're going to be sure to 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 go even into more depth with with some of those things that we've brought up like SIBO and negative gram bacteria um yeah. perfect perfect good chat sure thank you Dave we'll see you next right. time thanks so much for listening guys as always, we hope this podcast was helpful. If you want to continue to connect with us, our social media profiles are linked in the show notes. And don't forget, the contents of this podcast are for educational purposes only. None of the information provided in a gut feeling is intended to treat, diagnose, or give medical advice. So please consult a healthcare professional before making any changes to your lifestyle.